Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Village Global Solar Punk. We're super excited to have a very special guest with us today. James Gertz, known to most as Hondo, is an American former government official, a retired United States Air Force colonel who most recently served as the official performing the duties of the United States Under Secretary of the Navy. Gertz previously served from 2017 to 2021 as Assistant Secretary of the Navy on Research, Development, and Acquisition. Prior to that role, he served in the Senior Executive Service as Acquisition Executive for United States Special Operations Command, where he was responsible for all Special Operations Forces, Research, Development, Acquisition, Procurement, and Logistics. And now, onto the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So we're super excited to do a deep dive today into procurement, acquisition, U.S. government, and what those things mean for startups. So given your background and experience, we thought we could kick this off with you know, a pretty basic question for our listeners, but we think it's a really important one, which is why should the U.S. government care to work with startups and new technology companies instead of doubling down on, its, on their relationship with primes or existing companies? Yeah, I mean, boy, we could talk. Uh, hopefully, we'll talk a whole hour just on that, you know. And I think it goes both ways. I think for a while, the same question: Why would a startup care about working in national security? Was uh, was you know? And I think both sides for a little while could uh, agree to disagree and just go in their separate camps. But you know, if you haven't, I started noticing it when I was at Special Operations Command, and you know, the thing that kept me up at night was a good idea that was out there somewhere. And wasn't getting to me so I could get it onto the battlefield. And what I came to find was uh, the easier you made it to work with people, the more people you could work with. And good ideas, you know, there's no monopoly on where good ideas come from. They come from all over the place. Uh, But there was no connective tissue. And I think one of the challenges is as the percent of the, you know, U.S. population, world population, who's either served in the military, has family members in the military, it gets smaller and smaller, we can create this divide. And then there's a lack of understanding. When there's not understanding, there's not respect. They don't understand where the opportunities are. And when you're completely unfamiliar, you lose opportunities. And what I love about the startup and what I love about good government is when they're both opportunistic, right? And when they can see opportunities there and then they go, they don't look for the risk. They look for the uh, opportunity. And what, what I think startups bring back to the government and to the, I would say, you know, traditional industrial base is opportunism, right? That the fact that somebody says you can't do it is like, that's the entree card. Okay, let me prove to you that I can do it. And then quite frankly, that's what we really need if we're going to, if we're going to go forward. You know, the industrial base, we often call it, is basically, I say, World War II industrial base plus 4%. Right. We added a couple of startups here and there, maybe a couple of IT companies or something. But it's not the industrial network we need to both be prosperous and secure, in my mind, for the next 30 to 50 years. You can't be prosperous without security. You can't be secure without prosperity. And so I think you're seeing those things. I mean, Ukraine's a great example of how those are coming back together. 
and you can't just separate one side from the other. Uh, and again, I saw it probably 15 years ago in Special Operations Command. Uh, that command is, uh, you know, early adopters. And and I think it's, you know, they and the startups who are brave enough to suffer some of the pain it takes to work with the federal government are seeing that there are opportunities there, not only to be prosperous, but do to do something important for the country. Thank you for that overview. A couple of questions. So you mentioned that if we rewind, it feels like it was the industrial base plus 4%, right? So very small growth. And then you also mentioned the pain of working with the federal government. And obviously it feels like the two of the the two of those go hand in hand, where if it's painful and difficult to work with the government, perhaps it's not gonna, there's not gonna be that many new companies that are doing that. What have you seen as the largest changes from the government side? to try to fix that and make it easier for companies to start working with the government and actually be involved in this? Um, or do you think it's a mindset shift on the startup side and startups need to be thinking about this differently? I think it's yes and yes, right? And, and um, when I stood up Softworks way back when, which was kind of, I would say, the one of the first parts in the government, the whole goal was to bring the folks together. I called it, you know, I wanted to create the mosh pit, right? People randomly bounced in, bounced out, you know, you whack somebody in the head and then suddenly you knew somebody you didn't know. Uh, and then you saw opportunities where you weren't there. And when you brought folks together who, who who didn't think they had any reason to be together, that's tended to be where real innovation hits. I mean, it's the same thing that happens in the Valley, same thing that happens in any of these areas. It's when you start bringing together all these diverse groups. And so I think the government started to realize it. The challenge for the government is... You know, the taxpayers are fickle uh, venture capitalists, right? No tax, even if you can show it mathematically, no taxpayer wants to know any dollar they spent went to something that didn't work. Uh, and so that's just one of the peculiarities about entrepreneurship and public service. It's not good or bad. It's just the way it is. And then startups, you know, hey, hey getting new money from venture capital isn't easy either. It's just a different kind of barrier. And so I think as folks started to see opportunities instead of risks, uh, then things started to open up. And then you're starting to see some, I would say, wins on small scale and wins on big scale. You know, I would like to get it to the point where venture-backed companies don't have to have a billionaire backing them to break into the DOD. You know, those those were kind of pathfinders in your SpaceX's and Palantir's of the world. And now you're starting to see it, I think, happen at small and mid-scale. Now, what scares me in the defense industrial network is we've lost, I would say we've lost the middle. And it's really important for industrial base, especially one that's got to scale quickly to have a, a vibrant middle, you know, big enough to make an impact, but not so big that they get bogged down. Uh, and I think what a lot of the venture-backed startups allow is quick scaling from small to middle size or middle large companies. Uh, which can occur just on government revenue alone. And to me, that's pretty exciting. You're starting to see those kinds of companies breaking in now, uh, which I think will be, well, again, start to create this fabric. Ultimately, we got to have a network, right, that can bring together all of the different pieces. Uh, you know, the DOD and uh, defense is different. They Their risk tolerance, because you got lives at stake, you know, can be higher. And that's not good or bad. It's just what it is. Smart companies are starting to figure out how to blend the best of both uh, instead of the worst of both sides of that fence. 
And Hondo, I, I want to du- double click on something that, that you said, which is we've lost the middle. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? And w- also what the history uh, of what that is, uh, of you know how, how we got here? And why yeah, is that important? And I, you know, I'm doing the facts off the top of my head. And I read an article recently where DOD, since 20, 2011, DOD investment is up 23%. Uh, the number of small businesses that are supporting a DOD are down 43%. Even the number of large businesses are down 7% when, as a country, the number of businesses is growing at about you know, a rate of 7%. So what you're seeing is more money going to fewer performers. And quite frankly, I don't, what I don't have is the stats on the middle. But what tends to happen is any company who makes it from small scale to midsize gets bought up by the large. And so you have a number, a smaller number of larger companies doing more work, a smaller number of smaller companies and kind of nobody in the middle. And if, you know, if I think about how to scale an enterprise, you look back at World War II, our scaling was in the middle. It wasn't, we made a giant company at 10 times bigger. We made a thousand companies 10 times bigger. And that's how you got the scale and flexibility. And so that's, that's really what's got me concerned because when you get so many vertically integrated very big companies, it's really hard for new ideas to break in. So can I push you, Hondo, on that for a second? So uh, as as somebody who um, uh, had a company selling to the U.S. government, went through the SBIR programs, et cetera, et cetera, from the startup side, right, there's a huge gap between phase two and three, and then beyond that to program a record, right? That is like the valley of death in a sense, right? If you use startup analogies. So when you say that we've kind of lost the middle from a startup founder perspective, I look at that and I say, well, of course, the government doesn't want to support the middle, right? It supports these uh, silver mills, which, you know, we can get into that. And then if you can get to program a record, which if you know what you're doing is doable, but very few companies really know how to work with the government. What I'd love your reaction to that. Do you agree, disagree? Maybe we just did everything the wrong way, but would love yeah, no, to no, no, no. how we solve that middle problem. If, if it was easy, I mean, you're seeing the same thing in retail, right? You're seeing the Amazons of the world. So, I mean, you know, you're seeing it in not just defense. I think you're seeing that overall as we aggregate bigger and bigger things together. But here's what I would say. First off, I think we made a mistake by positing that the small business innovative research was the R&D or the way to get money from the DOD. That is 3% of 18% of the budget. It is one half of 1% of the DOD budget. So there's a lot more funding out there than just Sibbers. Uh, and Sibbers, to some degree, has got some, it's almost like a grant program or a, you know entitlement program to some degree. And so I think to your point, what we haven't done is open up the larger 99.5% of the DOD to startups and new companies. And that's really where you get scale. You know, when I was at the Navy, the Navy focused most of its effort on phase three shivers. I think when I left, we had 55% of all phase three shivers were in the Navy uh, because I was much more interested in scaling up companies. SOCOM, we did a lot of the same thing than doing the basic research piece. But we've got to open it up to broader than that. And, and some of the pioneering companies are starting to show that you know, you can break into the DOD like the Androls or pick your company beyond just a super phase three. Uh, and when we get do that at scale, that's really when I think we've gotten there. 
but we still have a lot of way to go. Yep. The other challenge for the DOD is, while the research and development spending is up, uh, procurement spending is way down. And so we're actually not buying a lot of stuff. And what we're buying are big things that cost a lot of money. And so it's actually not a valley of death. It's a cliff because there's really not a buy side on the other other side of it. So it's not because of, you know, sure, there's barriers or bureaucracy and getting a program record. The biggest issue is we're not buying enough. And what we're buying are really big things, which are hard for startups. And so nobody can close their business proposition because you don't get the buy on the back end. To double click on that, um, are the challenges that, that, that we're discussing today in your mind, mostly due to culture and mindset or bureaucracy, staffing, legislation, how, how would you break those down? And, you know, if you were to grade how the U.S. government uh, is doing when it works, working with startups from one to 10, how would you grade us and how would you grade us relative to how we were doing five to 10 years ago? Yeah, so, I mean, I think we're a solid, I think I said it in Harvard, I say, you know, a solid, maybe four, maybe four and a half, one to 10 on both sides. But I'm, some things are starting to make me more optimistic. Folks on the startup community had a reputation for not caring about defense. I'm not sure that was a well thought out reputation, but it was a reputation. I don't believe that at all. I mean, the Ukraine stuff is showing me tremendous folks are interested in making sure we're secure and, and we've got the, you know, the right kind of uh, things going on across the world. And so I think we can dismiss that. And I think the DOD is trying to figure out how to do it. Now it's a matter of aligning um, incentives and creating a place where the DOD can backfill that business equation, right? If you never buy things, it becomes really, really tough because then de facto you're an R&D machine without ever buying anything. And that's kind of where a lot of these super companies kind of turned into. Uh, and so uh, I'm optimistic that enough people are seeing the problem and we can't just wish it away the way I would say we've kind of been doing. We've admired it for 10 or 15 years. Um, and, and you're starting to see some companies do some really impactful things and on speed and scale, um, which is which is encouraging to me and showing the way and that and not letting the excuse of bureaucracy get in the way. So when you we talked briefly about SPRs a minute ago, but I'm curious if we rewind for a second and you see new startups coming to you and saying, Hondo, I have this idea. I, I want to help the government. I want to support it. What's your advice that you give them? Is it going down the SPR route? Are there other vehicles? To your point, SPR is such a small part of the budget. How can most startups think about their pathway to selling to government? Yeah, it's really interesting. In fact, I helped out the uh, Silicon Valley Defense Group stood up an academy really around this. Hey, you know, if you've got a, a venture backed commercial company doing well and you want to think about federal, what do you need to think about? Um, one one piece of advice I would give is if you want to do federal or think you might, you need to think about that from the start. But trying to at the same time satisfy a commercial customer base and DOD customer base simultaneously is really hard. And so companies that I've seen be successful have picked one or the other, gotten their product mature enough, and then crossed over. Some DOD play first, flip over, or vice versa. And so that would be one thing I would say is, you know, pick a pathway as your initial pathway, but keep in mind the second or third path you want to take, and then find the right time to jump over 
the DOD has a really hard time buying something it can't price reliably because the taxpayer expects the DOD person to be able to price it. So uh, many times if you've got a commercial product and you can establish a good commercial price first, then go to the DOD to add features, I think that would be good. The culture piece the DOD has got to get over a little bit is we tremendously overvalue standardization. Again, very World War II, like we want to pick one Jeep to give every person in the Army. And that is not what happens in the startup or the business world right now. And so I think the DOD is going to have to get much more comfortable with being adaptable on what it buys and not just buy one product forevermore uh, and buy the product you need for now, kind of more of a consumable mindset. Fascinating perspective on that. And I, I, I think it makes you know a tremendous amount of sense. What like when you see companies trying to figure this out though, what do you think the biggest mistakes that they make are? Like what's the most often uh, issue that you tend to see when you're working with these companies? Yeah, I think they've got to do some thinking before jumping in. It's not something you just jump in. Oh, I think maybe I'll sell the federal. Uh, or maybe I'll just get a retired four-star on my board and suddenly now I can sell in the, in the federal. Uh, you know. are, you, are you hinting about Theranos there? Or, uh, we, we, no, we I'm not. Again, I am one. I, I am one. So I'm not hinting at anybody. You know, I, I, you know, I resemble that remark. But, but too often, they haven't clearly thought through what the right time to market is and what the right product to market is. And so, you know, in, in commercial world, you talk about customer fit. In DOD world, you almost have to talk about buyer fit because what is different in DOD is your buying group is not always your using group. And where you're, you know, if you're selling direct to consumers, you've, just, you've, got, the, you've got the user and the buyer and the same person. Uh, in the government space, that's not always the case. So if you don't understand the difference between the person setting the requirement, the person buying the thing, and the person who's actually going to use it being three different communities and thinking through how are you going to bridge those communities. Uh, and you don't understand the lingo and you don't understand some of that, um, then you can get yourself in trouble quickly. So while I applaud the excitement, I, uh, you know, I advocate doing some good strategic thinking and thinking your way through what is your strategy What's the right crossover point? If you can match up, you know, DOD does do, and federal government allows you to finance things differently, allows you to depreciate things differently. So many companies have been very successful leveraging those different elements, but you've got to have a really thought through strategy. It shouldn't be, hey, you know, I know I woke up tomorrow and hey, maybe I'll go sell this to the army uh, and expect that to close really quickly. And the good news is once you close a deal, those deals last a long time. And so, you know, where the the challenge can be, it takes a while to close a deal. Uh, you're not dealing with a fickle consumer who will jump to the next best product really quickly uh, if you make it over that line, right? And so that's why I said, you've got to align your strategy to put strength on strength and don't expect to bring weak sauce, right? I mean, I've seen a lot of companies, you know, have kind of a weak product without really thinking through things. And then expect to get $5 million from the DOD to, so they can think about it some more. That's that's not the way the DOD works. That's not what the taxpayer expects. And then lastly, I would say, you know, when I left the Navy uh, as the acquisition executive, we did a hundred, so it had been 2020, we did $148 billion worth of contracts and 220,000 contracts. 
And so that's a pretty big enterprise that's got to build everything from nuclear powered aircraft carriers to buying some simple stuff. It's hard sometimes to get the relationships you can get on the commercial side just because of the amount of tasks the DOD buyers is trying to service. So given the number of organizations that are trying to help startups learn what the, the the environment is like on the DOD side, learn how to interact with it, right? You have everyone from uh, InQtel to DIU to AFWorks and SpaceWorks and SBIR programs, et cetera. Can you just give like a brief lay of the land for people? Like how to think about that spectrum? Do you approach all at once? Do you start with one? Like how do you even know where to begin? Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends a little on your product, but but again, I would I would not jump in super quickly. So some of it is, you know, an AFWorks or a Softworks or some of these, they're really more convening locations in contracting groups. And so I would take advantage of those, particularly if you can do it virtually or there's some in your area, just to build relationships and build your understanding. Right. So, you know, building this familiarity and understanding allows then you to respect where everybody's coming from and, and make better strategy decisions. So, you know, that's not unlike doing your normal business development or sales thing you would do. You know, invest a little time in creating some relationships. Uh, and some of them are really useful in giving you some ideas. You know, Naval X, their whole deal is, hey, let me connect you to the right person in the Navy. Come talk to me. I'm not going to buy it from you, but I can I can help you get to the person who might buy it more quickly. So that's where I would start with that as, as kind of the starting point. Then you can start using the Incutels or all these other ones to start testing your market. Hey, is there really something there? Is there, uh, you know, and, and to some degree, you can, you look at those funding sources, Incutels, uh, SBIR program, AFWorks, um, as ways to fund a feature, maybe not your core product development. And so, you know, companies that say, hey, you know, I want to add some, I don't need the cybersecurity for my commercial play. But it'd be great if I had it and I know the DOD is going to want it. So let me see if the DOD will help pay to give me some greater cybersecurity features or, uh, you know, some other, you know, some more robustness in my hardware. That can be really powerful because then you can improve your design simultaneously. When I was at SOCOM, Polaris was famous for giving us early vehicles. The SOCOM guys would beat them up. We'd find all the weak points. They'd know what to go fix to make their design more robust which then they wrapped into their commercial product. And so they leveraged the DOD to make a better commercial product and we got a better product for DOD. And so, you know, there's there's things you can do along those lines. Uh, one of the uh, greatest ways I've ever heard that described is from uh, Pete Newell, who uh, I'm sure you're familiar with him, who now does hacking for defense, but he called it the ping pong back and forth between the commercial and the government side. So you got to start with commercial, then get feedback from government that should improve your commercial product and back and forth. So I feel like I know your answer to what I'm about to ask, but I want it. I want you to tell all of our listeners this. When we see companies, sometimes some of our portfolio companies and yours, et cetera, and we hear them talk about, oh, I just brought on all these uh, consultants to help selling to government or to help open the door and uh, et cetera, et cetera. What's your take on that? Is that a good tactic, a bad tactic, uh, outsourcing a lot of that work? What, what do you think of that? So I'll give you, obviously, it depends. Certainly getting some strategic feedback is not a bad thing. But normally those strategic 
folks and, you know, a, a guy like me are not going to be door openers or, or that. And so if you use, if you use them more for here's my, you know, I'm, here's a play I'd like to run. Does this play make sense? That's a lot more beneficial than look at my webpage and I've got, you know, 75 stars or secretaries or whatever on the webpage. If you can use it to actually improve your plan, as opposed to just sell your plan, uh, I see benefit there. If it's just pure sell mode, you know, again, the buyer, I was a buyer. You've got a set of requirements. You've got a set of things that are of value. And the system works pretty well at buying to a set of requirements. Now, the requirements can be wrong and, and a whole bunch of other things. So use them for what they're good for. Don't use them for trophies. And Hondo, we had NASA chief uh, Bill Nelson say the other day that cost plus contracts were a plague on the agency. Uh, we also had someone on the show recently say that the government needs to pick winners because if they don't pick winners, they would just default to picking the primes. Is a change in legislation part of what's needed here? Yeah, I don't think it's a legislative problem. I have all the authorities I need. You know, I had more authorities when I was, you know, everybody thought special operations was fast because it had unique authorities. I had more authorities when I was in the Navy. It's it's more about incentives and and culture than policies or authorities. Um, now, again, a cost plus fixed price, we can talk a lot through. I mean, everybody who hates cost plus won't sign up for a fixed price contract. So you've got to, again, think of what I always like to do was make as many tools available to the team and then empower them to pick the right tool for the job. Now, where the government gets in trouble is try and pick one perfect tool for every job and not differentiate the work. And so, hey, if I'm doing a high risk mission kind of thing that, you know, a company is going to go under if they don't succeed on a high risk thing. Well, but maybe that is a better place for cost plus. But if it's a known thing and we know what to do, doing a cost plus is not the right tool. So I, I'm, I'm more a fan of, you know, I don't want a sawzall that does every job crappy if you're a woodworker. Right. I want a bunch of tools and then the right craft craftsmen that can pick the right tool for the job. Right. What, what do the primes do well that a lot of startups and new companies overlook? Do you think that their company that, that there are things that these startups can learn from the primes that they often overlook? Yeah, I mean, you know, all, all the barriers that all the startups complain about, the primes have to deal with every day. Now, some of them they put in place and reinforce themselves. So, you know, there are places where you need somebody who owns end-to-end -end performance. You know, the, the thing about the government that's a little bit different is, you know, again, we did $148 billion of contracts, 240. I don't have time to independently pick every component. So your component, your battery, your chip, your something may be better than somebody else's. But as a government guy, I don't have the time, energy, or expertise, quite frankly, to pick each individual component and put them together. Somebody's got to put them together. The government used to do that perhaps, uh, you know, way back when, not today. So there's a role for the prime, but that role I think has been overplayed. Uh, and the government's got to be a smart customer and, you know, pick the right person for the job. And so, you know, a lot of startups have done very well. Create, I mean, it's, it's no different than commercial when you pick a strategic partner you can think of a prime as a strategic partner. You just, again, need to make sure you know what you're signing up for, understand what you're giving away or not, get some advice on that and do it smartly. So I just think, you know, 
think, think of primes as strategic partners in the commercial world. The, the other thing that primes can be useful is a startup. It's hard, you know, the government values past performance, maybe to a fault. And it's hard to get proven past performance as a new player right out of the gate. And so sometimes what companies will do successfully is work with a prime so they can get some experience, understand a customer base, make their product what it needs to be, and then build up that reputation so that they can then jumpstart from there to have kind of past performance, proven performance for a, you know, a downstream competition. But they've got to understand internally with the partner and the government what their rights are and not give those away. So if you had full operating authority, and let's say, let's go a step beyond that, how would you change or redesign or reconfigure the current procurement system in order to create the biggest possible benefit for the US, right? So not just about supporting startups, but really at the end of the day, what does our country need to change or do about this procurement system? Yeah, I, first thing, it's all about mindset, right? Startups are successful because they have a mindset. Venture capitals are, are successful because they have a mindset. So before you start tweaking a process or a procedure or a contract type, everybody's got to line on a mindset and get opportunistic and, and get in a competitive mindset. Guys, we're competing at the global level. We can pretend we're not. We can hope we're not. We can wish we're not. Uh, you know, just watch the news every day. And so the first thing I say is everybody's get aligned on. We need to get back to being what we're good at. America's good at being competitive at the global scale in lots of different areas. We shouldn't see ground and give things away, right? To do that, then you need to bring all the elements to bear. And again, I go in a much more network approach than transactional approach. So we've got to get out of a transactional mindset. I'm going to award a contract to this person or that person, right? We're going to, we're going to need a network that has some prime contractors that can do what primes are good at. We need startups that can bring in new thoughts and energy. And we need to bring more of them in, not less of them in. And then we've got to be able to scale quickly, right? And then knit things together. Technology, I think, is allowing us to get away from this reliance on a prime contractor for everything that we've been stuck in. Because technology will now let, you know, you can cross over, you know, communication architectures or protocols or production startup. Right. It's not a capital intensive. It's a talent intensive kind of system we've got to build. I think if we start doing that and then look at it holistically, that's what we start doing. Right. Change the mindset. And when I was at the Navy, I didn't change. You know, most of what I wasn't changing was procedures. It was mindset. And in two and a half years, I think when I first got there, we did seventy five billion dollars a year in contracts and 240,000 contracts. And by the time I left, we did twice the amount, 148 billion with 15% less contracts. And we didn't change a single process or do a single act reform thing, right? We empowered people, we got teams together and we started knitting performers all the way across. Now you got to build the right technical architecture, right? So uh, somebody who's got a great algorithm can just drop that in. They don't have to rely on you know, uh, rebuilding all the network and you've got to have the right business architecture, uh, then I think we can start competing at speed. 
And Hondo, everybody in tech always talks about the different ways that government doesn't understand technology or tech companies. But what what about the flip questions? You know, in what ways do you think that, you know, tech people and startups don't understand the government and how it works? Yeah. And, and again, I go back to this before we can have an honest conversation. We've got to if you don't understand each other, then you don't respect each other. If you don't respect each other, then you'll never find the opportunity. Right. Government folks aren't dumb. Right. Government bureaucrats are not there just because they can't get a job somewhere else. Right. The guys like you know me and gals like me have spent 35 years when you could have done lots of other things. Uh, and similarly in startup, they're not just there to make a billion dollars and buy cool cars and all that other kind of stuff. And so what's optimistic in my mind is you're starting to see this mutual respect. Hey, I understand why you want to go do that. Hey, I understand you're trying to do something well. Then I think it's you got to get a reps and sets in, right? I, again, I go back to, you know, entrepreneurship in public service is really tough because you answer to a person who is, you know, very stingy with their money. They don't want money just wasted away and, you know, they expect outcomes. And, and, and so, and that's, that's the taxpayer should, uh, and, and that's fine. And so I think it's rather than, pointing at each other, thinking on outcomes. What is the outcome we're trying to achieve? If that's the outcome we need to achieve, then what can you bring to the table? What can the government bring to the table? You know, the government, you know, I, we talked to every single performer in the Navy um, in COVID. And the Navy clocked forward uh, in the first two weeks, we put about $6 billion in play and we clocked forward about $40 billion worth of work in the first six months of COVID to keep a lot of companies afloat and get their contracts written ahead of time. And the government proved it was a good performer and a good partner in that realm. You know, when things go bad, the government orders more, right? And so I think that also showed the startup community and, and industry in general that, and now the government's out there trying to do what it, the best thing it can for the country. And and in a weird way that, you know, between COVID showing we need to own our supply chains, that the government understands and wants to keep companies around because that's valuable and that startups and new business can bring in new solutions was was actually kind of a, the starting of a mind shift, a mindset change that's, uh, that I'm seeing right now. I'm seeing it in Ukraine. I'm seeing it all over the place. You know, this convergence of there's no there's almost no commercial technology or DOD technology. There's just technology. And you're seeing as those converge, we've got to break down this barrier of, am I federal? Am I commercial? Am I startup? Am I, you know, we- One thing you noted was kind of this, uh, all tech companies are just tech companies, right? It shouldn't just be commercial or government. One common question that we get asked is how should a company think about being uh, or creating a product that might only have applicability to the government side. What do you think of that, right? If there's certain applications that really just don't have a strong commercial outlook, do you obviously still might be a great company in terms of working with the government. The question is, is that still a venture scale company? And how do you think about the need to tie in the commercial element in order to really help it reach venture scale? Yeah, again, what, what venture brings and what commercial can bring is a rapid scaling. DOD can too. I mean, I've seen companies go from, you know, small to very large with a big DOD contract. I mean, um, I, I, think, I think what 
is most important. And, and I think Bilal said it, so I'll quit him. You know, the challenge with the DoD market is normally venture likes either a technology risk to a known business process or a business innovation with known technology. They don't like trying to take on technology risk and business risk simultaneously. And sometimes working with the DoD, you get caught in the, well, this is better technology for them and I'm going to change the way they do business. And that can be a conundrum. And so I think what, what I would say to companies thinking about it is think about which one of those paths are you trying to upset first, right? And there are pure play defense companies that do really well with a startup mindset. I think, again, as this convergence occurs, you're going to see more and more of those uh, because, again, it's a lucrative it's a lucrative budget. I mean, $800 billion budget. You know, uh, you know, there's a lot of startup money, but as particularly as money gets tight uh, and, you know, this this idea of, you know, that we're going to hit some inflationary pressures and that the availability of, of venture is going to get tighter and tighter, you know, DOD may not be the hardest customer to sell to. And Hondo, you kind of hinted at this earlier, but, you know, as we head into the next decade, how critical is it for the U.S. government to modernize, maybe not its procurement and acquisition process, as you mentioned, but to its mindset uh, to better work with startups? Why should people it's, care? It's, it's, we're not going to get there without it. Again, we're World War II plus 4%. We need to be, I, I call it, you know, I'm going to trademark, the, you know, the future industrial network, Right. We need the future industrial network. And yes, it will need some old school metal bending, build ships and build airplanes and stuff. Uh, but it's going to need a whole lot more uh, that commercial can offer. And you're not going to be able to, again, the, the market is not there to scale it purely as a DOD play. Right. And and again, things DOD cares about, commercial is going to care about. Hey, I, you know, I love your product. If it's not cyber proof. Let me break it to you guys on the commercial. Commercial is going to be on the front lines of, I think, the next conflict, right? The first thing that's going to get hit from a cyber perspective is commercial. And so if you, if commercial doesn't start adopting some of these resilience uh, features, they're not going to survive either. And so that's why I say you're really seeing this convergence happening. So I don't actually think of them as a, you know, DOD industrial base and commercial industrial base. It's an industrial base. The fact we can't make our own chips should scare commercial guys more than it scares DOD guys, right? Um, and so that's the way I, I kind of see it happening, Luke, because I don't, I, I, we can't think of it the way, on either side, we can't think of the way we thought of it for most of the folks that are listening here on this podcast, unless you've been around for a long time uh, or you're just born three years ago, right? We had 30 or 40 years ago where, you know, where we were 30 or 40 years where we've lived off of an old idea and tried to kind of ignore the new one that's coming. And it's coming like a freight train. So to take a step back for a second, when you look at America, the U.S. today, what is the one thing that's keeping you up at night? The one thing that you're most worried about? Uh, I worry about resilience in almost every, in every facet emotional manufacturing resilience. You know, when I got to the Navy, we didn't have a plan on how we were going to acquire during world time, wartime, right? And so we start up an effort. Okay, if we have to go to war, you know, where, where else can we make ships? Where else has got a commercial ship we can adopt? All those kind of things. And so I worry about resilience and thinking 
in a competitive mindset. And I keep going back to this mindset thing. And, and I know it's, you know, everybody wants to find the golden process or the golden Sibber 2.0 or something. All that stuff will come if you have the right mindset, if you don't have the right mindset. So the thing that keeps me up at night is how do we generate collectively a competitive mindset? It's almost as if we've decided, yeah, you're right, we suck. We're not going to be able to do this, you know, China this, Russia that, or whatever. And we've got to break out of that before it's too late. The challenge in a democracy, what worries me is in a conflict, you know, the strength of a democracy is it will attract partners and allies that authoritarian won't. Uh, The weakness is it's not usually the one that will take the first punch or give the first punch. It's got to take the first punch. And so that means we've got to be able to be resilient and counterpunch fast enough to matter. And if we take our eye off the ball, we're not going to have, like in World War II, three years to kind of build the industrial base and catch back up and then overcome. Like Things are going to go that much faster now. So that's the stuff that really, you know, that, that's the stuff that worries me, that, that we'll wait too long to figure out we really have a problem, and then we'll be too slow to react. And that's why I think many of us are talking about this future industrial network, because startups aren't that way. I mean, that is that is the benefit of startups. They're not waiting for something to happen. They're driving something to happen. If we can leverage that tremendous strength uh, towards a little bit more of whole of country approach, then we will we will be unstoppable. You're seeing it in Ukraine right now. Right. That was that was not in the calculus that all this commercial tech would come at the speed of heat and change the game there. Hondo. To double click on, on what you mentioned, you know, the situation that we're in right now, how do you think that we got here in the first place? Uh, in some ways, ha- have things just been too good for too long? Uh, yeah. And is that is that what create, you know, there's that quote, strong, ma- strong man create good times, weak man create hard times, right? Um, yeah, I, mean, it, I, I, I don't want to turn in that old guy that remembers what it used to be way back when and, you know, that, you know, I'm, that old crotchety, you know, you know, when I used to walk up, you know, walk to school both ways uphill or something. But I do think there is an air of, and it's our natural culture, uh, you get complacent, right? And I think we got into a little bit of an era of complacency, and then we had 20 years of hard combat, but maybe, you know, focused in one niche area, which was important, but then it'll, you know, it further took our eye off the ball a little bit. And so, I don't think it's catastrophic uh, unless we don't turn it around. And again, what, you know, you asked me what, you know, I, I sleep pretty well. What do I wake up in every morning thinking about? I'm thinking about how do we leverage all of this incredible talent that's in this country in a new and better way and do it holistically. I mean, it's going to be a thousand things. It'll be changing contract types and all that kind of stuff, but it's got to even be bigger than that. That's why conversations like what you're having, and the kind of hard conversations that have been occurring in the last two years, you know, five years ago or eight years ago, we wouldn't have had this conversation, right? It would have been, you know, about flying cars or something like that. It wouldn't have been, you know, this thoughtful across such a broad range. And so, you know, I do think in this emerging generation, there are many great ways to support the country, some in uniform and some not in uniform. And back to this national service, and again, I'm not, you know, not talking about getting centrally planned and authoritarian, but, you know, being able to support your country and do the other things that you want to go off and do, I think, is a core piece of our culture. And I think we, 
we maybe got out of that a little bit. We, we let the divide grow too deep. Um, and so it's great to see it coming back. So if you're one of our listeners and you care deeply about the future of America and American values, what would be your advice to them? What should they be doing in light of the need for resiliency and everything that you just discussed? I, I think it's just get involved. Get involved in a way that's meaningful to you. You know, whether it could be, I mean, and again, just as I'm trying to convince all of, uh, you know, the folks on the DOD side of the football field, hey, it's okay to cross the other way and go talk. To, I mean, it was really interesting when we stood up Softworks and we had a bunch of special operators there, not in uniform. And, you know, one of the things we did was we had any of the high school robotics teams or junior high teams could bring their robots by and we take a look at them and talk to them and stuff. And it was amazing how many folks, oh, I didn't know I was just talking to a Green Bray for the last two hours. You know, I thought they were like, you know, killers that ran around at night. And, you know, we just got, you know, the folks just got too comfortable being apart from each other. And so the number one thing I would say is just get involved in something that's meaningful to you and get outside your comfort zone of the normal people you hang around with. So go to a defense entrepreneurs forum if you're a startup or if you're on the defense side, you know, go go find these venues where you can at least meet people and start breaking down some of those perception and then find a way that find a way that you can, you know, contribute that's meaningful to you. And to close this up, Honda, what in your mind, what keeps you most optimistic in the face of, you know, all of the challenges that the world and the country faces? Oh, it's guys like you two. Right? I mean, it's guys trying to get out there and do make a difference. Right. I mean, it's I, I am not of the I mean, I saw it on too many uh, opportunity of uh, equipping so many special operators over the last 15 years. And then the Navy and the Marine Corps in the last four to five years. Is, I spent a lot of time out in the field. That's where I get to learn what's really going on. And are we actually impacting things that make a difference? And, you know, are we oversubscribed in discovering things and you know, undersubscribed in deploying them? And. Are we actually making a difference to those folks out in the field? And the one thing I can say is, man, every time I come out of there, I was more fired up than when I went in there. So it's not a it's not a generation generational thing or a they don't care thing. Um, everybody's trying to do good things. We've just got to rally around uh, and lead the way on bringing folks together. And and you know if if you follow my uh, my music song of the day every day on LinkedIn, uh, you know, it's together we're stronger, right? Alone we're strong, together we're stronger. And it's amazing to me when I could bring uh, new tech to the battlefield with new people supporting it, how fired up they were. And they were, you know, they had saw the value of contributing. We've just got to make it available. And we've just got to break down stupid and just get the stupid stuff. If we can get all the stupid out of the way, I am fully uh, confident we can do whatever we want to do as a, as a nation and as a, as a set of democracies. We just got to be, have the courage to get stupid out of the way. Hondo, this is an amazing way to close it out. Thank you so much for doing this. All right, guys. Thanks. Keep on, uh, keep on bringing everybody to the table here. Break down those barriers. <laughs>